Welcome to a special Slaying of Sacred Cows edition of Behind the News on the Chopping Block Home and Family. My name is Doug Henwood. The non-shocking, only in number, two segments today. Michelle O'Brien will talk about family abolition, and Jane Chung will tell us what's wrong with the American cult of homeownership. First under the axe, the family, and not just the Aussie and Harriet kind, which accounts for only about a quarter of the households in the U.S. these days. M. E. O'Brien, a sociologist, psychoanalyst, and writer, has a new book called Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care from Pluto Press. She's also a co-editor of two magazines, Pinko, on gay communism, as it says, and Parapraxis, on psychoanalysis and politics. I'm quite happy with my family, but many people certainly aren't with theirs, and in any case, my situation is no guide to what's good social policy. O'Brien's book is a serious and rigorous overview of the origins of and problems with our family structures, and what might be better ways of organizing the intimate, physical, and emotional care we need to live and live well. Many people recoil from the phrase family abolition and the concept behind it. As you will probably hear from my second question, it's something that makes me stumble. But O'Brien's argument is worth listening to, and she delivers it very well, both on the page and over the air. Emmy O'Brien. Let's start with defining the words of your title family, and abolition. Uh, What do you mean by these things? First, family. I was just reminded of the origin of the word because I just looked it up. Uh, It's from the Latin word famulus for servant, uh, which is an interesting (laughs) angle. What kind of family are you talking about? What is the role that it uh, it serves? I provide three contrasting definitions of family over the first three chapters, and all of them I engage over the course of the book. And the first is a unit of private social reproduction. So social reproduction theory is a major current in Marxist feminism these days and identifies, it it comes out of the housework debates of the 1970s and some Marxist thinking before then, that identifies the family as a unit in the reproduction of a capitalist society, both the bourgeoisie in reproducing the, the ruling class and working class families as reproducing the workforce. In terms of what that means in our lives, it's that We all rely on private households for a huge portion of our social reproduction in figuring out how to prepare food and get ourselves ready for the next day and raising children, that the vast majority of generational reproduction and a significant portion of personal reproduction happens through the unit of the private household. And that has affective and emotional and psychic dimensions, as well as questions of the distribution of material labor. That's a whole definition that informs the book, and I use that in part in thinking about the history of the working class family and its place in capitalism. And then the second definition is thinking about the family as a unit of violence. I focus a lot on uh, the external violences of the family policing system, the history of white supremacy, uh, the history of racial capitalism, and recognizing the role of the state in violently intervening in certain kinds of kinship forms and facilitating, enforcing, or imposing other kinds. So thinking about the history of Indian boarding schools, the removal of Native American children and Native Canadian children, First Nation children from their parents, and then the later development of allotment policy that enforced a sort of private patriarchal household form on indigenous families. I look a lot at the history of slavery and natal alienation, and then the contemporary forms of anti-Blackness in the family policing system. And then that external violence is also, there's an internal violence, that the family is the main place in society where people experience sexual assault, uh, where children experience violence. It's the main place that people are most likely to be raped. It's, for women, the most likely place to get murdered. And that the setup of the private household with protected by privacy from the outside world for certain families and not others. And uh, the 
structure of children being treated as property by their parents really enables and facilitates uh, a high level of vulnerability to violence. That we as society have very few effective ways of dealing with that. The family policing system is, I think, a particularly destructive and racist one. And then the third meaning of family, and this ends up uh, playing an important role in how I imagine society overcoming the private family form, is the family as a site of love and care, and as the place that holds our desire for love, our desire for non-alienated means of caring for each other in the world. And the family as a place that people turn to sometimes, if they're lucky, both in their imaginations and in their desires and sometimes in their practical lives for refuge, for a kind of support and healing that we all yearn for. And so those are the three meanings of family that sort of unfold over the course of the book through my history, through thinking about the crisis of the family in the present, and through thinking about possibilities of the future. And now the abolition part. The word abolition sounds rather negative. I mean, you write very movingly, for example, about uh, George Floyd at his moment of death calling out for his mother. And you acknowledge the love and care behind that call. And I think many people perceive or experience the word abolition as an attack on that and not some of the negative things you were just talking about in, in the family. But you are really attached to the word. Uh, so why abolition, even though it does seem to have... Um, some political problems of popularity. Yes, certainly family abolition is not a slogan likely to inspire the masses in the near future. I I fully acknowledge that in terms of popularity. So by abolition, I drawing on a Marxist tradition and thinking about the Hegelian meanings of Haven, I think about abolition as both the destruction of something and a kind of unleashing or preservation or radical transformation of something else. And that in any any form of abolition, it takes a certain discernment to recognize what needs to be destroyed and what needs to be preserved or radically transformed. So this is pointed out occasionally that the abolition of the state does not mean that nothing is planned or governed. It's uh, abolishing the state as a a separate social form that rules over society. Abolition of, of work does not entail people not engaging in productive collective activities. It's about uh, trying to transform the property relations tied up with capitalist society. Abolition of prisons is not about not having ways of dealing with violence and safety, but about recognizing that this particular social form is a really destructive way of going about it. So abolition has these complex meanings that involve both a thinking about radical alternatives and uh, recognizing the limits and harms of social form. And I take that very seriously throughout the book. Ultimately, I, I think I take a much harder line than most people that the private household is a very bad way of organizing society. That I think some people, when they talk about family abolition, are specifically talking about abolishing a kind of ideal that is imposed on people, a kind of white supremacist normative fantasy. And uh, in contrast, they might celebrate uh, chosen family uh, peoples having celebrating the many, many forms that kinship takes. And that is a part of my definition that's a very important part in thinking about the history of white supremacy in the family and thinking about the kind of yearning and desires that are expressed when people form non-conventional family forms and household structures. But there's an element of abolition that I am talking about a really fundamental and massive transformation of how we live our lives. And that's thinking about the private household. So my co-author on a novel that I wrote last year, uh, Man Abdahadi, we wrote Everything for Everyone, put it that uh, who you sleep with, who you have sex with, who you are parented by, should not determine the material conditions of your life. And that that, as a principle, I think is a really straightforward ethical principle that should be a part of any communist politics. And it actually requires really fundamentally transforming 
how property is organized. And there are different ways of envisioning that. We can envision sort of state forms of universal social supports. We can envision people living in very different kinds of collective setups. We can envision many possibilities, and I go through some of them in the book. But the private household is the main way that we organize so much of social labor right now, so much of our personal lives, and so much of property. And the kind of material conditions of what it takes to survive under racial capitalism. I don't think there's a defensible basis, ultimately, as the private household as a basis for for a free society. So in that sense, I really am talking about a, a, a fundamental transformation of the place of kinship and love and care in how society is organized. And that goes well beyond many critiques of the family that I think are widely shared on the left. Okay, I want to get to your vision of the future uh, a little later, but before that, some history. Marx and Engels wrote some very good and radical stuff about the family, but their target was mainly the bourgeois family. What were they overlooking in their analysis? Part of the way I came to the book is I edited this reader on revolutionary feminisms with a group of other people, and we collected together radical writing on gender and sexuality, mostly from Marxist traditions, but also from anarchist and Black liberation and other currents. I found many of the authors were very explicit in wanting to abolish or overcome or radically transform or destroy the family But what they meant by it seemed to vary a lot. There was some really contrasting and often contradictory positions. And I realized as I was trying to think through it, and it wasn't straightforward, it took me a couple of years of thinking about it to begin to develop an argument, was that the meaning of these struggles to go beyond the family changed significantly as the role of the working class family in capitalist society changed. So the meanings that people took up in gay liberation struggle, in Marxist feminist struggle, in the Bolshevik revolution, in Marx and Engels's writing, the meaning of family they took up was specific and reflected what they understood about the place of the family in capitalist society, and that that varied as capitalist development unfolded over the course of the 19th and 20th century, so that I map or periodize the meanings of family abolition onto thinking about a history of capitalist development. Marx and Engels are very specific that they're talking about the bourgeois family. They're talking about the bourgeois family as a new social form that emerged with capitalism, one that's tightly organized around property, that imposes very strong normative gender roles that uh, creates distinct spheres of the private feminine domestic sphere of a woman that is uh, not engaged in work outside the home, a very intensive role in child rearing and cultivating children, uh, a father who is linked up with circuits of capital accumulation and property, and the family as a system of inheritance and the reproduction of bourgeois society. And that's a meaning of family that Marx and Engels are extremely critical of. Engels writes about its history emerging with private property. Uh, He's a little less clear on its changes with capitalism, but he's very, very critical of the bourgeois family and really considers it to be an institution that's intensely oppressive of women. And in the Communist Manifesto, they make a somewhat ambiguous but uh, strong allusion to the abolition of the family as a communist demand. But they talk very, very little about the working class family. And I locate that as being tied up with the dynamics of capitalist development that they were documenting, particularly around industrialization in Europe, and how much... Uh, this phase of industrial capitalist development decimated the kinship ties, the particular patriarchal family structure of peasant families, and forced large numbers of children and young women into the workforce, mothers working largely at home and putting out labor, and recognizing this kind of unraveling of a certain kind of set of gender roles in the working class family that Ingalls thought sort of heralded a form of working class gender equality that 
meant that there was no real need to critique the working class family because capitalism had already destroyed it. And that, that, you know, I have some political differences with that, but I think it correctly recognizes the tremendous violence of industrialization and industrial manufacturing on the lives of proletarians in the 19th century and a kind of unraveling of people's ability to generationally reproduce themselves, that the working class of the mid-19th century in Europe was not... Uh, their children were dying too fast to reproduce themselves, that it required a constant influx of peasants from the countryside in order to maintain the workforce. And that this, this violence, it's not unique to this period. I think in a very different form, we can uh, see something like that happening on the slave plantations of the Americas. We can see something like that happening in subsequent phases of early industrialization as they unfolded elsewhere that it's uh, impossible at this time for working class people to form anything that resembles the normative family. I'm speaking with Emmy O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, just out from Pluto. You write that uh, the working class uh, life of the 19th century was not all about traditional family values, and the bourgeoisie was not very happy about it. Um, There are aspects of it that uh, you seem to find kind of charming. So yeah, what was that like? Well, I don't romanticize the poverty and despair and health crises of working class people in the 19th century. But industrialization did involve the rapid urbanization and proletarianization of large numbers of people during during industrial capitalist development in Europe involved a radical proliferation of gender and sexual practices and identities that we see a huge explosion of, for example, trans-feminine people often living uh, on the fringes of urban society as sex workers or as hustlers, criminals in a variety of ways. Policing codes become very concerned about that. Lots and lots of working class women engaged in sex work. And unlike later, Uh, at the end of the 19th century, there wasn't a clear, hard line between respectable women and non-respectable working-class women. That working-class people broadly couldn't obtain a level of respectability so that there was many women engaged in sex work for a period and then moved into being uh, mothers uh, in working-class households doing putting out work later on. The division between later the sort of the very poor, the non-respectable, the lumpen proletariat, and the respectable working class hadn't yet really emerged or been imposed. Sex work struggles were really tied up with the broader struggles of the class and see the role of sex workers in the Paris Commune and in urban insurrections in the 19th century. And then I'm also interested in a particular moment in the history of uh, Black life in the Americas during radical reconstruction, after uh, slavery had been abolished in the United States, and this uh, window of time during which the Union Army was occupying the South, uh, the former slaveholders had been largely disarmed, and there was a, a massive explosion of Black political activity, of Black people being elected to Congress, forming political organizations, including socialist ones. And one of the peculiar things that happened during that time is the conditions of slavery had produced really radically different orientations to marriage family, love amongst Black people than than existed in white America at the time. And a divorce, for example, was not uncommon. Remarriage was not uncommon. That uh, marriages, of course, under slavery were subject to the violent intervention and separation of slave owners. They had no state recognition. And during Black Reconstruction, one of the remarkable things that happened is Black people, uh, former slaves, emancipated people, found former lovers, found former spouses and former co-parents, and lived in unusual and non-traditional households that wouldn't be that unusual today. But in some cases, people lived with a former spouse and a current spouse. In some cases, people raised, parented or raised children with partners that they didn't have lifelong commitments to. People formed a a huge variety of households that reflected 
both the freedom of Black Reconstruction and the inability to form normative families that had been the case under slavery. Uh, and that this was a moment of Black sexual freedom that was quite remarkable and ended up being destroyed under the Jim Crow system. So yeah, these are various moments of sort of 19th century sexual emancipation that interest me and occupy one of my chapters. You have several delightful passages about uh, Fourier. Um, could you talk <laughs> yeah. some about his vision? Sure. So Fourier was a utopian socialist in the early 19th century. He had a huge impact on Marx. Uh, he was French and he wrote, he hated private property and he hated marriage, bourgeois marriage and monogamy, and thought the private family, the bourgeois family, was a horrific and catastrophic absence of freedom. And he had a lot of quite wacky ideas. Um, he probably invented the term feminism in its French, and definitely Marx's ideas about sexual emancipation and gender equality seem to largely be derived from Fourier. He used many of the same phrases that Fourier used, and Fourier had a huge impact on thinking about sexual freedom in the 19th century. One of the unusual things about Fourier is he developed a very extensive vision of how a free society could be organized based on phalanxes. These are communes involving 1,600 people or so. He thought that they should be organized to include one of every possible personality type and in careful internal balance of uh, personality types, sexual energies, laboring activities, and that these people would live together, they would eat together, and they would work together, create a factory internal to the commune, and Fourierist communes were attempted in a number of places. I, I talk about some of the irony and what's revealing about their problems that they were attempted in the U.S. and Canadian frontiers. They, of course, largely failed, as many utopian socialist projects do. But his ideas had a big impact on communes in the and the back to the land movement in the 1960s. And one of the very unusual elements of Fourier that is not widely talked about is he passionately believed that these phalanxes would be places of sexual freedom and erotic joy, that uh, people having fulfilling sexual lives was a key part of a free society. And he imagined, partially modeled after the Catholic Church, incredibly elaborate and arcane systems of various skilled levels of sex workers and sexual practices to address everyone's sexual needs. He imagined armies of young people roving around the countryside during a period of exploration where they would battle other young people from other communes through performing sexual feats and awed their, their viewers with their uh, sexual skill. And then the defeated army would submit itself to sexual activity if they were, if they were adequately awed. So, you know, a, a big emphasis on orgies. <laughs> he also said a lot of ridiculous and offensive things. You know, he was racist. He was supportive of colonialism. He, I think some of his ideas about sexual activity would rightfully be offensive to people today. And he had some imaginative, speculative ideas that make very, very little sense. But I really like from Fourier, so, so as I was trying to think about social institutions that could overcome the family but not replicate capitalist market forms or consolidated state institutions, that I found Fourier uh, to be the closest to the vision that I ultimately turned to, that thinking about social reproduction on a large scale involving hundreds of people, thinking about production intimate life, food, living together, these things being interconnected with each other and recognizing that sexual oppression is a core part of the history of racial capitalism and that its overcoming could include an attention to the richness and power of erotic life. Maybe not exactly in the way that Fourier imagined, but in a way I feel inspired by his vision in taking seriously that sexual freedom, queer freedom, queer joy, queer love might be a very important part of imagining our way 
past the oppression of the private household. Now, there's a lot more in your historical analysis I'd like to talk about, but time is limited. Um, so let's talk about a way out of uh, the family um, as you see it. First, there are you know, kinds of social democratic reforms that uh, would reduce the economic compulsion to either join or stay in a family, income supports, uh, other forms of social welfare. You like these up to a point, right? I absolutely. I'm, I, I strongly support social democratic reforms. And I think this is one uh, for those who are not yet won over the family abolition. This is an argument that I have uh, around the need for what I call progressive anti-family reforms, but are often framed as pro-family supports. Um, but the elements around which they help people move out of families, I think, is really important to draw attention to. So I take inspiration from the left queer movement that called into question the pursuit of gay marriage. And one of the arguments that they made is that the heterogeneous and diverse ways that queers organize private lives actually have a particular uh, potential for a strong alliance with migrant struggles, with Black struggles, with many people who are not able to form conventional normative households, who might not want to, who found find other ways of raising children and living together and loving together, and that these various social forms are not validated by the state, they're not recognized by the state, and they don't receive uh, the same material supports as a normative family does. So I identify many groups that have a great deal to gain by either destroying the normative family as a dominant social institution in, in legal regulation or in significantly expanding the means to be able to live outside the family. So thinking about disabled people who are dependent on their caregivers, thinking about children who might be trans or exploring gender and sexuality that their parents are bigoted against, thinking about people subject often women or children subject to violence within their households, thinking about Black and migrant families that often form unconventional uh, systems for caring for each other. And then in all these cases, what's needed is either having a broader state recognition of the diverse ways that people care for each other. So one example of this that I think about, I'm not sure if this is in the book, is one thing I encountered working in social services in New York City were homeless people who would form domestic partnerships with each other in order to be able to live together in the shelter, but did not see themselves as romantic partners and did not engage in sex together. But there are two adults who want to live together, who want to be able to live together. And the way the domestic partnership laws were written, they could potentially do so if they became domestic partners. It strikes me that any adults who want to figure out how to form legal ties with each other should be able to do so easily, uh, that the diverse range of ways that people form households should be legally recognized. And then the other piece of it, and this is very important to me, is that we expand the material supports for people to be able to choose to leave their families or form families that don't provide the same sort of material access. So many, many people stay with partners, stay with parents, stay with um, family members, because to move out would involve a significant drop in their material conditions and their standard of living. And this is, I, I think, tremendously oppressive. This uh, encourages people to stay in relationships that don't work, to stay in violent situations, to stay in situations to prevent them from being able to uh, transition or express their gender and sexuality in ways that feel right to them. And our commitment to gender and sexual freedom, to the safety and well-being of working class people, really necessitates that we provide a lot more supports for people leaving their families. And this would include decommodified social public housing. This would include universal health care and education, higher education. This could include uh, universal basic income, that all of these material supports, occasionally conservatives argue that these kind of material supports, social welfare programs, undermine the family because they encourage or enable people to leave bad relationships. 
And sometimes the left response to that is to minimize the problem that people, of course, stay in uh, relationships that feel right to them. They often form new relationships over time. But that this, I actually argue that this element of people being able to leave families that don't work for them is something we should celebrate, we should defend, and we should pursue. And framing our pursuit of social welfare as supporting of working families, although sometimes true, doesn't appreciate how they also benefit or should benefit people that need to get out of violent, abusive families, that find their families unfulfilling, that want to live differently, and the left should embrace this, respect this, and support this as much as we're able to. So this is a call to sort of move beyond the rhetoric of family as the primary way that we call for social democracy. Of course, in the history of social democracy, often states design welfare programs to try to encourage, force, or facilitate normative family formation with mixed success. But often welfare programs are designed sort of assuming a male breadwinner in a way that it's very, much more difficult for people to access who don't live in a family structure. And instead, I think we should really celebrate the potential of social welfare programs to be able to radically diversify the material conditions for how people live. And you conclude the book with a lovely, lovely evocation of a world of care and Eros, Martin Luther King's beloved community. Could you evoke this for us so we can go out on an inspiring note? Sure. So yeah, I after talking some about sort of future possibilities and how I see uh, social reproduction happening in mass protests right now in barricades and anti-pipeline protests and using this to try to imagine collective communes emerging as a form of social reproduction. At the very end, I get more abstract and I look at the uh, Martin Luther King's idea of beloved community And particularly the beloved community for him was a revolutionary horizon. It was not something that we readily had available. It was imagining the overcoming of the deep alienation and separation between people under white supremacy. The beloved community was the a goal, a direction beyond what we could readily imagine of an emancipated society. I also engaged the uh, Marx's idea of Gemma Weissen, um, sometimes translated as community. I'm mispronouncing the German, to be clear, that later was developed by Bordiga and Jacques Kamad and some other Marxists and post-Marxists. And this idea of community uh, for Marx is really tied up with our species being our our capacities for creative collective activity and that could only be realized in a revolutionary transformation. So rather than community being something that we can easily turn to now under the highly alienated conditions of racial capitalism, both these ideas of Marx's idea of community and Martin Luther King's idea are about imagining a possibility of human care and human love beyond what uh, the conditions of racial capitalism, both involving the overcoming of separation and involving the destruction of the alienated forces that rule over our lives under capitalism. That's my gesture at the end towards red love and to the possibility of a free emancipated society where the conditions of human flourishing are generalized. And that includes the care and love that we all need. That was Emmy O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care from Pluto Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Don't you know you're gone? Yeah, you 
your son Don't you know you're gonna kill Kill your son Don't you know you're gonna kill Kill your son And to the run, 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 run That was some of Lou Reed's Kill Your Sons, a dark view of family life inspired by the electroshock therapy he underwent as a teenager. It's often said that the treatments were to cure him of his same-sex urges, as they said at the time, but his sister denies that, saying the treatments were ordered because of anxiety and other mental health issues, and their parents were not homophobes. Next, the American cult of homeownership, the topic of a recent piece in The Nation by Jane Chung. Even though we make a very big deal of it, our homeownership rate is right in the middle of the 27 rich countries I could easily find data for, and slightly below average for a wider sample of 64 countries. We come in slightly behind Canada in the share of households owning their dwellings, well behind Italy and Spain, slightly ahead of Sweden and France, and well above Germany and Switzerland. It's a little hard to find any social pattern in those rankings. Our middling rank comes despite a century of propagandizing and probably the deepest public subsidies for homeownership in the world. For example, there's nothing like our system of securitizing mortgages in any other country. Securitizing means that banks don't keep mortgage loans on their books. Instead, they sell them to government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which package the mortgages into mortgage-backed securities for sale to investors. That provides additional capital for the sector and reduces the bank's risks, encouraging them to make more loans. Few other countries offer the tax benefits for homeownership, notably the deductibility of mortgage interest payments that the U.S. does either. So what is often advertised as a paragon of self-reliance, homeownership, comes with extensive government support. Despite all this public agitation and subsidy, we still suffer a housing deficit estimated by Freddie Mac at 3.8 million units. Let's listen to Jane Chung for more. When she's not writing for the nation, she runs campaigns to build worker power, fight for environmental justice, and dismantle the big tech-powered surveillance state. Jane Chung. The U.S. seems to fetishize homeownership to a degree unusual among countries. Is that a correct impression? I think it is a correct impression. And part of what motivated me to write this piece is spending some time speaking with family and friends back in my parents' country, South Korea, where there is an entire class of very financially stable working people who do not think that homeownership is required to achieve long-term financial stability. And seeing the different attitudes towards homeownership among my South Korean family and my community here in the U.S. is one of the reasons why my interest in the topic was peaked. Okay, so what is the core of the myth? What is this American dream supposed to do for you? The core of the myth is that being a homeowner makes you a good member of your community. It makes you a good parent. It makes you, in some cases, a good Christian. It makes you a good American. And having this sort of ownership stake is seen almost as having an ownership stake in the U.S. as a whole. And we've seen example after example of presidents and HUD secretaries ranging back from Herbert Hoover all the way to the Bush and Obama administrations, echoing these sort of narratives about homeownership. Well, I recall when, um, I'm old enough to recall this personally, when Maggie Thatcher was uh, privatizing public housing in England, she made it very clear that there was uh, a politics dimension to it in that it homeownership seemed to make people more conservative. Having a mortgage makes you less likely to rock the boat in any meaningful way. Um, so there is also that conservatizing effect that it has. Yeah, and I think it goes a little deeper than that, not just in terms of conservatism in the fact that there is a mortgage to pay off, but also in the idea that there is private property that is yours and that you should have full say over what happens, for example, in front of your doorstep or on the sidewalk in front of your house or in the community where your house lives. And I think there's a lot of conservatism wrapped up in that idea of the sort of individual ownership versus collective ownership of community and housing. Yeah, it seems like uh, just a few steps from that to the stand your ground laws. Yeah, 
Totally, totally. There's always a moral subtext to this too. It seems like uh, there's something disreputable or suspicious about renting. Yeah. And you know, that is also not on accident. I think the crux of, of what I was hoping to achieve with this piece is there are all these sort of moral associations that we have with home ownership, And those are not on accident. These have been carefully messaged to the American public for decades and decades. And part of the moral argument is there too, where I speak briefly about some of the campaigns that the administrations of past have supported, like Better Homes campaign or Own Your Own Home campaign. And you can find examples of literature, of pamphlets, of other propaganda materials from those periods of time that talk about laziness, that talk about addiction, that talk about uh, poor parenting, and associate all of those things, even impotence among men, with renting. And the, the kind of cure that is presented is, is home ownership. And so that association is historical and intentional. One thing, though, um, for people uh, who own their houses, they do have some degree of security. They can't be evicted so easily. And I think a lot of working class people who want to own a house just like that security of tenure, which is hard to duplicate in a rental arrangement. Although we saw high levels of foreclosure during the housing bust of uh, uh, 15 years ago. But still, there's a sense that there's something more secure about owning your house rather than just renting it. Of course. And I want to be really clear about my intention in this piece, which is not to place any moral judgment on current homeowners or renters who aspire to be homeowners one day. I personally aspire to be a homeowner one day. And that's because of how the system is designed. It shouldn't have to be that you have to own your home to have basic rights and protections or basic long-term financial security. However, because of the tenant hostile laws that we have in this country, it's, it's become so. And it's kind of become the only way that we can achieve the kind of stability and security that we want. Okay, let's talk some about the historical roots of this. Uh, the industry has been pushing these sorts of campaigns for over a century. I think you mentioned one that started around 1919. Uh, the Own Your Own Home campaign, which was uh, started by the predecessor of the National Association of Realtors. Uh, and then the Hoover administration picked up on that. So what did that look like? What were the, what were the contents of that? What were they had to say and why? It was a very sophisticated campaign and illustrated a lot of the different tactics that we see in, in any sort of campaign. So first of all, there's the narrative and the messaging. You have Herbert Hoover making speeches about the moral importance of, of having homeownership. You have secretaries of commerce echoing those same talking points. But there's also really interestingly an, an organizing element to it where there was an effort nationwide to create these hubs of homeownership organizing, one could say, around which campaigns like the Better Homes campaign identified volunteer, they were called local chairmen at the time, who convened their own community in their own homes to organize and talk about and spread the good word about homeownership and to exercise some sort of governance and control over their communities in which they were homeowners. And so in that way, it was not only using the bully pulpit to inculcate these sorts of ideas, but also a really impressive organizing machine that solidified those values among the American public. And then FDR took that message and expanded on it radically, right, with some real significant policies. Exactly. So FDR signed into law, establishing the Federal Housing Administration, which allowed more home construction, importantly, as well as the Federal National Mortgage Association, known colloquially as Fannie Mae, to free up banks to lend more in order to provide more mortgages for the American public. And, you know, the other crazy thing about doing research for this piece was, for some reason, I always thought that the 30-year fixed rate interest loan was just a fact of the economy of home ownership. In fact, that was also invented. There was a time where a 30-year shackle 
was not part of the the process of of owning a home and yet it is today and in fact it's what ties up a lot of Americans in debt which we now call mortgages instead yeah and the I believe the fixed rate um, is very unusual in the world most mortgages in other countries are a floating rate um, which is I guess safer for the borrower but uh, it's a real innovation to encourage homeownership yeah, and innovation indeed. I think the U.S. was an innovator in, in a lot of these aspects. I'm speaking with Jane Chung, author of The Case Against Homeownership on the nation's website. Now, of course, that was the period of redlining as well. So that helped establish a racial dimension to homeownership. Exactly. And I think that racial divide is evident not only in the homeownership rates, which differ greatly among, for example, Black Americans versus white Americans, but also in the makeup of of communities that have been redlined historically and continue to be redlined today. Now we have an, uh, an arrangement where homeownership uh, enjoys really heavy tax subsidies. Um, who benefits from these tax subsidies? This is one of the great should I call it slights of hand of the homeownership crusade is that the tax code that is supposedly benefiting homeowners does indeed benefit some mortgage borrowers or to some extent. But a study by the Congressional Budget Office in 2001 showed that only half of the benefit from these tax subsidies actually reaches homeowners. The other half goes straight to corporate interests. And I think that's the other sort of force here that is undergirding this entire campaign is the corporate interest among realtors, among banks that have pushed along these efforts and are the beneficiaries of these efforts in multiple ways. The benefits of the tax subsidy greatly exceed uh, the uh, subsidies for public housing. <laughs> so the people who um, least need to be subsidized are the ones who uh, are subsidized the most. Exactly. And I think I would argue that, that this, this is one of the ways in which homeownership, as we currently uh, experience the system today, is worsening economic inequity in the United States. It's amazing how in public discourse, rising house prices are considered to be good. Uh, it's really amazing to me that the fact that one of life's necessities is getting more expensive is celebrated as good news. I mean, we don't celebrate rising food prices, but somehow rising house prices seem to be a good thing. It's kind of perverse. It is really perverse. And, and that's one of the researchers that I cited in writing this piece calls it a Ponzi scheme, which it, it basically is. It is the fact that you can only own a home in a lot of parts of the country today if you are wealthy. And as prices go up, you sell off to folks who can afford the homes, which are even wealthier people. And so this kind of growth in, in value is only benefiting the wealthier and the wealthier. We've also seen rents rising along with house prices. So the, the whole housing sector is just getting much more expensive for everyone. Totally. And that's that was the real impetus behind my writing this. I live in New York City, which is increasingly unlivable for working people. And we desperately need change in the city and the state. We have rent prices that are where, you know, working people are spending 50, 70, 75% of their income on rent. And that is just untenable. There has to be a change for not only tenant rights and protections, but also housing prices. We need uh, caps on rent rises, especially after the pandemic, in order to make the city livable again for workers and working people. Well, in many parts of the country, that was house prices rise, uh, development sprawls further outward, which just results in a social and ecological disaster as you know, farmland gets chewed up, parkland gets chewed up, wilderness gets chewed up, uh, so that people can find an affordable place to live. I mean, it's, uh, it's not, a good, uh, not a good arrangement. It's not a good arrangement, indeed. And, and I think there is uh, a whole kind of body of research around how as we sprawl into the suburbs, that impacts the political and, and moral leanings of the electorate as well. Yeah, it does encourage what we talked about a little bit this earlier. It does encourage that individualism, a competitive individualism, which is the opposite of any kind of social solidarity. Exactly. And I think that part of that individualism includes, you know, we, we talk about the rise of the NIMBY movement, not in my backyard, and 
the attitudes of, of existing homeowners who are often the more financially secure and wealthy in our society, refusing to allow more construction for more housing that might be able to help our housing crisis um, in their backyards and in their communities. And that only exacerbates the, the problem even more. Okay, so having diagnosed all these terrible problems, um, what do we do about it? Are there alternatives that uh, would be a more humane and sensible housing policy? Sure. So I talk in in my piece about increasing pathways to long-term financial security that don't require home ownership. And so there are examples of this around the world, especially in nations having better social safety nets for people. Countries like Sweden and Denmark and Switzerland have much lower home ownership rates than we do in the U.S. And part of the solution there is something called social housing. So there was a great piece in the New York Times recently about social housing in Vienna, Austria, where 80% of residents qualify for public housing. And that's a real paradigm shift from the way we think about public housing in the US, which is mainly for the poor among us. But imagine if we could, if almost all of us could qualify for public housing and have rent rates that are affordable and have protections built into them for tenants so that we can't be evicted without cause, for example. I think these examples exist in the world. And if we are to put aside our American exceptionalism for a minute and and choose to learn from other examples, it would really help us solve the housing crisis that we're in today. That was Jane Chung, author of The Case Against Homeownership, published in The Nation magazine's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, an unusual celebration of the odor-occupied dwelling by the fall. Till next week, bye.